1: If you do it like a term paper where you go, okay, I'm going to write about this neighborhood and this street, it, it just ends up feeling really canned and and not like a story at all. And and the, the analog that I use for it, I'm, I'm always imagining somebody pulling up a bar stool next to me and saying, so what's your deal?
0: We will do it for you. We're the So we it's like a knife It's good and fun it stopped, And no one has a good fool why do they just spoil And even die at this point And you're doing a diary And well you have to suck it And you miss now. Throw down It's just so It can't set up a and, and something that I'll
3: just And something that will just Welcome to the Dreams of Consciousness podcast. If you'd be so kind, would you mind introducing yourself?
1: I am Eugene S. Robinson. If you want more than that, I'll be glad to give it, but that's the start.
3: Mr. Robinson, since this is a music podcast, let's start with your musical work. Would you mind telling me which bands, which acts you've you've played for uh, through the years?
1: Oh, well, used to be in Whipping Boy, who's Claim the fame. We toured a bunch with Minor Threat, played shows with the Dead Kennedys, Bad Brains, Fear, Minutemen, Husker Du, and then somewhere in the late 80s, got sick of that and switched over to doing this band called Oxbow, which I've done since about 1988. And then over the years, you know, Oxbow has a very kind of long playing kind of release schedule we've had you know 30 plus years and eight records so we work uh, on a, a quite a different schedule so i filled up my time in that time with side projects with jamie stewart from juju we did a project called salminio there's the italian super group and i say everybody in the group is super but me because they're all from larger italian bands called bunuel and there's a new double album of bunuel coming out in may on Skin Graft and Overdrive, and Peter Bratzman did a live record with him earlier this year. We released it, you know, rest in peace. And uh, pretty much any time, any place, people want me to sing, I, I'm usually available to do so.
3: And you know, as you mentioned, Whipping Boy played, you know, shows with the Dead Kennedys, Minor Threat. You're very much part of the U.S. hardcore scene as it was emerging. Well, would you say that your your work throughout the years has belonged to one genre or another?
1: No, I don't. I mean, I, I definitely. I, I was in a band before Whipping Boy called Alan the Exes, where I played saxophone, and that was the first. It was more New York no wave stuff. It was the first band I, I started in California, but then went on to start Whipping Boy with a very serious intention of starting a hardcore band. So I, you know, I was attracted by the genre, wanted to do something within in the genre. And, and did so until, you know, had a kind of a, a crisis. And that was sort of toward the 87, where I, I was obsessed with capturing the music that was in my head. And so I started, I said, I got to do this as a solo project, because if you do it in the band format, everybody thinks they have this a say. And I really don't want that because I'm I'm hearing this music in my head. So I started recording bass, which I play badly, and drums. And it was taken forever to get it done and not to a degree of competency or not specifically what was in my head. So I think I, I, I waylaid Nico, who at that point was a guitar player, Nico winner for Whipping Boy and said, listen, I want you to help with this project. And this is, these are the lyrics and this is how I'm envisioning these songs. And he embraced it wholeheartedly, you know, came up with a very complicated schema for, for, how we were going to put the songs on on the first record which is called Fuck Fest and it, it it served as a pretty apt suicide note which was my intention at the time given my crisis um but the record was so well received that we you know John Peel was into it and they wanted us to go to to England and I figured you know what, maybe I should see England before I die <laughs> and then of course that was so successful that we did a second record and then I kind of I I kind of got 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 beyond the dark night of uh of my soul, and I've been I feel fairly fortunate to be able to, you know, we've played with everybody from King Diamond to to Peter Bratzman, you know, shows with Isis, shows with Neurosis, Scratch Ass, Jesus Lizard. I mean, this is a you know a dream menu of people who are making interesting music and doing interesting things. Boris. Sumac, the list go, goes on. So the Melvins, it's pre- been a pretty great ride, but I, I would consider us to be genre free since about 88, even though I understand that now people call it noise or the post-punk or some such thing. I mean, this is only useful insofar as you have a record store and need to know where to put the record, but it, it doesn't serve serve us at all.
3: And in addition to being a frontman for several bands, you are also a writer, which we'll we'll get into shortly would you mind telling me a, a, few, a few of the places that you've written for as as a as a columnist and as a journalist?
1: Oh, GQ magazine, the New York Times, the LA Times, Hustler magazine, <laughs> a lot of sports magazines because of course I'm I'm obsessed with mixed martial arts and and I'm also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, so I'm kind of obsessed with combat sports. SF Weekly, Big Guardian, you know, Wire Magazine, uh, European music magazines. It's been. I used to be editor in chief of Code Magazine, a men's fashion magazine. Senior editor at Mac Life Magazine, a magazine dedicated to you know Mac computers. Editor in chief of EQ Magazine, a magazine about recording and engineering. So it's been a pretty. It's been a pretty good, a pretty good run. And it it creates a situation in which I really know if people are doing their jobs when I'm on the other side of being interviewed. And I've done TV and movie stuff as well, TV commercials, you know, Miller Genuine Draft, a beer commercial that was directed by Gus Van Sant, which I got lucky enough to get. And, of course, the worst movie of 1987 with Bill Cosby. You know, Leonard Part Six, <laughs> a bunch of TV shows, uh, King of Love with Nick Mancuso, Midnight Caller with Gary Cole, you know, it's been a pretty, pretty wild, wild, wild ride. My love is writing first and then music. And then the acting thing, I mean, which I've done since I was two years old is, is, is a nice cash thing, but I don't have any real major love for it. And, of course, there have been four Oxbow documentaries, so, so there's that too. But that was easy. That was just me being me. So
3: Before we get to the books that you've written, I'd like to point out that you created one of the early U.S. punk, U.S. hardcore zines, uh, The Breath of Tragedy, where you interviewed members of Black Flag and Lydia Lunch along with, you know, Anton LaVey and serial killers. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't even call it a punk. I mean, that was pretty much post-punk. With the the first major kind of large size issue I had was the the not I, there was a sex and depression issue, and the second one was fear, and that had the the Manson stuff in it, and it had the guys from Survival Research Labs, where there was all this kind of hardcore industrial art happening that most of us had been either fortunate enough to see the posters and just started going, or later if you were not local. You got to, you know, you got to read about it in research books, but I never considered that to be, even though Rollins was one of the first contributors who was sending me some of his writing, I never really considered it to be a punk journal. It wasn't, there was nothing explicitly punk about it. It was just on newsprint and happened to feature people. Like, I think that, I think Biafra was in one of the first to second issues, but we didn't really talk about music because as luck would have it, good for me, bad for him. The interview happened like two days after his wife had left him so (laughs) we spent a lot of time talking about life and love and it was pretty you know it's a pretty i've never read an interview with him like that before or after so it was kind of a combination of being in the right place at the right time the serial killers portion was also sort of compelling because it came at a weird period in my life where you know they are so used to people being afraid of them that like Charles Manson and I got involved with the, the Manson family and then there was money concerns and confusions and and they decided to get kind of you know Manson-y with me and, and threaten me but of course you know I <laughs> that was really much the wrong tack to take with me so yeah I mean at that point I I also had a thriving store which is what they we were at loggerheads over because I said I'll, I'll sell your stuff. Consignment, and they, you know. So as soon as I took it, they were asking for money. I go, no. Consignment is, I give you money. Not, I sell. I give you what I've sold after ninety days. And they're like, well, maybe we just need to come talk to you. And I was like, oh, you're threatening me. The Manson family is threatening me. I go. Well, maybe you don't know this about me <laughs> but i proceeded to give them my name my address my phone number i said anytime you're feeling big enough to come you should come on down you know i mean because in addition to opening a store that had tape t-shirts videos and a recording studio and a rehearsal studio all in one spot i also had a sideline of behind the counter i had a federal firearms license so i was selling you know firearms which I was carrying with me all the time in a in excess of paranoia, maybe, even though those words don't ever really go together, excess and paranoia, and I was fairly indestructible. But, you know, things with serial killers, as you might imagine, always tend to go south sooner or later. <laughs> but, I mean, who would guess? Who would guess somebody that had killed 33 people like John Wayne Gacy might not be wrapped that tight? Who would guess? <laughs>
3: Out of curiosity, what, what was your interest in in the serial killers and why did you want to cover them in Birth of Tragedy?
1: I think my my objective, I mean, it culminated with the the big reveal was in the interview with Anton LeVay from The Church of Satan, where I, I I wanted to know very specific specifically if he had if he if he understood evil and not as a philosophical kind of religious conceit, but if he had felt it working within him, you know. And I'd had a couple of incidents in which I felt this kind of, I was involved in a, in a you know, in a, in a scuffle of some kind. But I remember feeling this r- really massive amount of, of animal rage that was not part of my normal waking personality at all. It was almost like, and so I'd read something about Ted Bundy. They were talking about when he transformed from the guy. We was just walking around to the guy that was murdering people and they said it was almost like another person had come into the room he, he smelled differently he looked different he even sounded different you know, right and i i'd met a woman at one point and had gone to her house and we didn't know each other very well i mean we, the plan was to that sexual congress would be afoot and then she says to me she said you need to know something and, you know, with an entry like that, you stop and pay attention. And I go, okay. She goes, I've got knives hidden all over my place. This was told, told to me by a way of warning, but I didn't need the warning because at that point, at the point where she told me her pupils had gotten so wide that her eyes, that you couldn't see, there were no more whites of her eyes. They were all black. And it it was just that fast. I looked away. She said, knives all over my place. I looked back and she was gone and replaced by somebody else. So I, I started to pursue this as a, uh, because I figured, well, <sighs> these guys have to know what I'm talking about. I mean, they absolutely have to. They have to, you know, you know, John Wayne Gacy was, you know, it was uh, on the Chamber of Commerce. And then, you know, suddenly he's strangling people in his basement. He had, to, but nobody coped to it. And, you know, Anton LaVey was the worst of them all. I mean, he was like, well, it's what doesn't feel good. And I go, hey man, a, a, you know, appendicitis doesn't feel good. It's not I don't call that evil. And then finally he just backed down and said, Listen, I'm an atheist, you know, I'm just I'm just doing this to make the rent. And I was like, Okay, okay, all right. And then I found during the course of I mean, I've interviewed Chris Rock, I've Billy Bob Thornton, you know, Samuel Jackson. I've interviewed a lot of people in my course of in my life as a journalist you know, fairly normal interviews. And and it wasn't until I started interviewing organized crime members that I felt that again. And I knew they knew what I was talking about. And it was, again, it was that same sensation. I remember interviewing this mob guy in his car and he said he was talking about his boss and he goes, you know, murder was Jimmy's thing. It just, it seemed to kind of relax him. And he paused. It's just the two of us in the car. He paused and said, yeah, in other words, he, you know, I, I helped him clean up from the murders, but I didn't murder anybody. He goes, but make no mistake, if he had asked me to, I would have. And he looked at me, and I got very quiet in the car, and I felt like I was in the car with a tiger, right? So it's like, like those guys knew. And I did not get (laughs) philosophical with him at this point and say, have you felt this? Because it was really readily apparent to me that he had, he had felt it in total. And this was a normal guy, had wife, had kids, you know, had a good, came from a good family, but he had chosen this as a lifestyle and understood exactly what he had chosen. So I, I found it to be a compelling field of study. And so each and every kind of avenue was kind of a step down that road. Whether or not I was talking to mob guys, I did a, a series called "Crime All the Time," where it, we went to New York and kind of went to mafia dump sites, and then did this big piece on the Gemini Twins, these guys who had murdered over two hundred people at this uh, Gemini nightclub out in Canard, uh, in Brooklyn, East New York, and it was just—I mean—that was you know, this is this is this is what I was looking for and that's what I found there so was it illuminating in any way shape or form well enough for me to generate a book from it right a long slow screw which are kind of a collection of the mob stories that I you know it's a fictionalized account of something but it's really a collection of the mob stories I heard during the course of my involvement with these guys
3: did you actively start pursuing writing
1: oh that was the first thing i ever did as soon as i learned how to write i mean within that year of me learning how to write so i must have been about six or seven i sent a query letter to esquire (laughs) i got rejected but they took the time to actually write back which i thought was kind of nice on esquire letterhead and somebody signed it so right away right away but i didn't i didn't until my third year of college had not Kind of convinced myself that, that would be what I did for a living, even though from the age of fourteen on I was right, I was publishing, you know, school magazines and then freelancing to music magazines and so on. So I just never thought of it as I mean, I guess my stepfather was a journalist, and I had seen that he his life was sort of miserable in that regard. people were always cutting his stories. But then when I figured out the mechanics of it, I said, well, if I'm an editor, I can write. And I don't have to worry so much about people massacring my pieces, so that's kind of what I did. And it was a a wild turn to be able to, over the years, actually hire him. (laughs) Uh, That was that was amusing.
3: You hired your own stepfather?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I needed pieces that could that that they could be get written, and I knew he could do it with a minimum of, of of suffering and pain on my part as the editor in chief. So. He, you know, he's also been editor-in-chief at odd points. And I'd like to point out that, take a second to point out here that he he has never hired me. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was curious. And I brought that up several times, not in a, a rancorous way. I just said, it's kind of funny, huh?
3: You speak about writing, writing in a, in a public way for school magazines and, and, you know, music magazines and things like that. But were you also somebody who wrote compulsively privately? Did you keep a journal or anything like that?
1: now nah, i'm too paranoid to keep a journal i my mom kept buying me these blank books in order for me to keep a journal and i used them on occasion but i i always used i was writing fiction from the beginning i mean for me it was you know fiction with air quotes around it i mean i was stylizing stuff that was happening to me into stories so that it would serve to as a reminder to me but it would be fairly confusing to anybody else reading it so I mean, I understood immediately that my mother was buying me a diary, one, because she saw that I had a real interest in writing, but two, if I were going to treat it like a real diary, I guarantee, 100% guarantee it would have been read by hers. <laughs> 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 so I I, I I, think I was justified in being paranoid. I mean, not that I had anything to hide from, hide from my mom, but it was just, you know, there was stuff in my head that I, you know, if I was interested in other people knowing it, I would write it down and I wasn't, so I didn't.
3: Were there any particular writers who, whose work you enjoyed, who you think maybe influence
1: your style influence my style no no but i did have a lot of favorite writers but you know these are age bound right like i remember being very much into the beats right and that was pretty early like so we're talking maybe 11 reading on the road and you know 12 fear and loathing and then you know jd salinger of course you know you catch her in the rye i mean these are all things that every person should be reading anyway probably at around the same age a lot of Hemingway, but i don't i don't i didn't find myself if i was going to be influenced by everybody anybody <laughs> i would say I, I i i really really obsessively loved mickey spillane <laughs> i really loved him uh, and he was widely kind of reviled as a hack, but I just, it's a shame to me that most of his books are out of print, you know, but I just thought, I thought his his stuff was great. Absolutely great. And I understood, and I understood there was a problem with that. I understood that, you know, technically, officially, he was probably not as good as F. Scott Fitzgerald, but it did not matter to me. He was, you know, of a piece like his Some of the stories are perfect. They were perfectly what they were. And I liked it quite a lot. As I gotten older, I mean, you know, I've gone through, I think I discovered Harry Cruz and that whole Southern Gothic thing, probably when I was about 14 or 15, I got an interest in weightlifting and found his book, A Gypsy's Curse with a weightlifter on the, you know, a legless weightlifter on the cover. And I thought, this is for me. I've never seen that book again, that version of that book that I managed to find at Strand Books in New York, but I was happy to have it. And then I moved from him to Cormac McCarthy. And then, you know, pretty much I, I'd read somebody until I could get behind the curtain, and figure out what they were doing. Then I'd be like, yeah. So and that happened with me, with McCarthy, with The Road. I was like, yeah, or no, Child of God, sorry. It was already, I was already starting to get kind of the screw face with the road. And then I got hit with Child of God. And I was like, he never should have published that. Somebody I've read obsessively from beginning to end and have, he's never, never hit a false note for me has been Martin Ames, read everything he's ever written. Nothing, there were no clunkers in the batch. So
3: you don't describe the the beats as, as being an influence, but there is a stream of consciousness aspect to your writing, where there are a lot of asides and a lot of digressions. Uh, would you say that's a fair characterization?
1: Yeah, yeah, but I, and, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure my reasons for distancing myself from the Beats are wholesome. And, and I say that because as a result of interviewing, you know, Ferlinghetti and Corso and Allen Ginsberg, I started hanging around these guys so you know i was in new york with ginsburg and john journo his friend shig his, you know his ex-lover peter orlovsky and the only one i didn't meet was burroughs but you know burroughs dance card toward the end of his life was so full of hanging out with guys like you know river phoenix and fucking johnny depp that it was just uh i i I just i found them personally dis- i really liked ginsburg but these guys were fucking children. <laughs> you know? I mean, they were just like, you know, old hippies. At least give Kerouac had the decency to die early and <laughs> not be a disappointment. You know, it was, uh, I mean, and this is like, it wasn't a racial thing either because I didn't have too much luck with his name was Leroy Jones at the time, became Amiri Baraka and Ishmael Reed, who I used to love as well, who's a latter day. I mean, he kind of came along in the 70s and met these guys too and was just, just fucking disappointed, man. What is that uh, German word? Abamensch, you know, half men, you know, children with no serious experience of, or breadth of life. I, I I don't know. I don't know. I I, I I found myself not impressed. I mean, you know, Ferlinghetti, whose work I loved, and he made the mistake of, of being up at City, City Lights, his bookstore, he goes, Eugene, I want to show you something. And I was like, oh man, the great man's going to show me something. Go up to his office, he kind of pulls off this, you know, this cloth, all over all, he's got a canvas underneath, he's like, my painting, it was terrible, man. And so like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I just expected so much more. And then Joel Wahlberg, who was Bukowski's manager, I was pushing so hard to get to meet Bukowski and that, and that never actually worked out. So he said, if you show up with some whiskey and a woman, you might, you know, you might get in. But I, I it was easy to get the whiskey. But shit, man, if I could find a woman to hang out with, me, I would have taken him.
3: You wouldn't need to hang out with Bukowski if you could, if you could just get a woman.
1: Exactly. I was having my own my own problems in that regard at that time. So whatever. So yeah, I just I you know I, I mean it's you should never meet your heroes. You know that's what they say, and that's probably more true than not. I mean I've met a lot of people who I really liked before, and I, I, I tell you what's what's the coolest thing, and what's happened a lot, is when I expected nothing and was totally surprised. Like, like Billy Bob Thornton, I was like, Yeah, whatever. Seems like an all right guy. I gotta get knocked this out, get the piece in, file it away. And I ended up, I just fell in love with the guy. He was fantastic, you know. And it was one of those weird interviews where like, you're like, I think we could be friends. <laughs> and you're not sure. And then the guy calls you up and goes, Hey man, I wanna send you something. And what, he's, well, why don't you just come by my house? So he just come by his house You go he ring the bell. He's like, here. And he gives me this shirt and it's a t-shirt, which I still have. And I, I go, I was all right. He goes, all right, later, later. And then his office calls me and says, did he give you the Solomon Burke shirt? I go, yeah. He gave, they go, you, do you know Solomon Burke gave him that shirt? <laughs> I go, yeah. He goes, do you know what that means? I go what he's like because you know Billy Bob Thornton was a musician in real life, so this was a big, this is a big deal. He fucking gave you that shirt, you know. So I was like, man, I, I every time I don't give a shit. I can't any bad news I read about Billy Bob Thornton. Like when he flipped out on some radio DJ, I was like, nah, fuck that. That DJ was wrong. Ride or die team, team Thornton, you know. And uh, so a concept. But then there's a weird thing, you know, when you meet like Samuel Jackson was an asshole, so that kind of was depressing. I really liked him prior to the interview so
3: i mean it, it is a funny thing and and this is <laughs> you know it, it it's a strange thing to say because i'm interviewing you right now but when you when you have a relationship with someone as as an interviewer they sort of treat i mean and in fairness a lot of these guys whatever interview they did that maybe the 10th or 20th interview they did that day do you know what i mean yep yeah yep, for yep. a lot of these guys there there's a there's a public persona you know which is maybe why they're so successful but they can just like snap into it you know as soon as as soon as the mic turns on and and you know they're able to to be that person
1: yeah but it's also i'm gonna let me let me be a little artistically critical here i I mean, I don't really think actors are artists, <laughs> you know. I mean, they're not writing the words they're saying unless they're improvisational actors. And I'm sure some of them would argue that acting is improvisational. But, you know, you're being directed You in, in the best ones, Brando and so on. They realize to a certain degree that they're trained monkeys, you know. <laughs> so so these guys for these guys to be giving me the air is kind of disappointing. But I do find it shocking that I've never really met a writer that, you know, and I, and I, like, I love Lydia's work, you know, so, I, but I'm talking about more people who have, who have only distinguished themselves writing. It's kind of strange that I haven't met a writer. Well, there are lots of young writers who I love, you know, Adam Smyre, who's done this book, Knucklehead and, you know, Darius, I like D- uh, Darius James, you know, the guy, Negrophobia. And they're, so they're white, my generation guys who, who I really like, whose stuff, and Jamie Stewart just came up with his memoir, which I loved, but in terms of like, People who I would look up to, like name cats. I tried to interview Martin Amos, like actually within the last year, and then he he was. Well, I don't really think that time is right for me. We're kind of negotiating, and then he died. So, and that's happened to me a lot. Like I was just about to interview Dennis Hopper, and he's like, ah, "My schedule has shifted around, maybe." But then he died. Norman Mailer, he died. So pretty much, if you screw around when you're scheduling an interview with me, and you don't do it immediately, you're probably going to die. I think that's a lesson <laughs> to be learned here. <laughs>
3: new book called a walk across dirty water and straight into murderers row mm-hmm. through feral books
1: feral house
3: feral house sorry yep. let's start with the title mm-hmm. two parts a walk across dirty water and straight into murderers row what do those two parts refer to
1: well there's a there's a a song called four stations on whipping boy's first record the sound of no hands clapping and that's a line from the song walk across dirty water and then the straight into murderous real thing is of course, <laughs> you know, more kind of about how I ended up where I ended up, which has been this kind of consistent pursuit of, of bad people. Right. I mean, I've been doing this before I knew I was going to document it. I was working as a lifeguard in a kid's camp upstate New York. And I'd sometimes go home on the weekends and I'd be riding the prison train and, you know, I always found the murderers to ride because, you know, nobody wants to talk to them. Not They didn't know they were murderers, but they had, you know, the desperation that comes from people who have been incarcerated for a long time and then get out and just want to talk and nobody wanted to talk to them. I remember a couple of times riding with these guys and getting to. You finally get into Penn Station or Grand Central Station, New York, and then say, hey, let's go get drinks. And yeah, I was 15. But, you know, when I was in New York at that point, the drinking age was 18. Even though when I was 15, I looked like I was about 12. They had no compunction at all about serving me beers and stuff. So <laughs> hanging out with these murderers and it was always a, a great thing. Like you'd always ask, hey, so what were you in for? Which is all right to ask when you're in prison, the people ask you what you're in for. And the guy would be telling oh, I was watching a baseball game. And I said, yeah, and I was living with this broad, and she started screaming at me, and I shot myself in the head when I was younger by accident, so I had a plate in my head, and we were drinking, and she starts swinging a bottle of booze around, and then they go into this fugue state where they're like, next thing I know, the police are kicking in the door. I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, just from the point of view of narrative, what do you mean? He goes, well, I guess I beat her, beat her up, and threw her out the window, <laughs> you know. His name was Billy, Billy Kahn. And so this was happening to me a lot. So I figured, yeah, that's that's been my iconic, consistent pursuit of of the real and the authentic, you know. I mean, nobody who, who lives life like that. Some of these guys I've interviewed, whether it's Manson or Gacy or... Uh, they're they're not tourists (laughs) i mean there's no artifice there unless it's trying to to trick you into their basements these are this is as real as it gets so i think that's why the title made sense to me
3: and to be clear this book is i mean would you describe it as a memoir or an autobiography Uh,
1: no it's 100 percent a memoir
3: and you've written novels before you wrote a book about fighting why why memoir why did you want to write about your life experiences?
1: I didn't want to. I didn't want to for a long time, for like years. And the interesting thing is I was friends with uh, Vale from research. At one point, you know, he did the series with Diamond Gallus, and they put Lydia. And I said, hey, man, you should do a book on me. And he was like, well, you need to do something. And I was like, all right, wise guy. So it was it, it was it, totally satisfying when at some point for her podcast, Lydia interviewed me at at his house and so as i'm talking to her you know we're on camera and on mic, but i'm looking at him the whole time when i'm talking about hanging out with bill clinton you know i'm talking about hanging out with these various mafia guys i'm talking about the murderers and so on and i was like yeah it's too bad you could have been there bud yeah (laughs) you know giving me the high hand uh, I was old, I mean that's the thing you know there were always flashy flashy uh brighter things out there but I remember that line from Shakespeare when he's de- describing Cassius you know he's, he's he's got a lean hungry look and you know that's one of the, my favorite photographs uh, in the in the in the memoir of me and Rollins facing off and that's that's what i see 100% you know kind of like cape fear you know with max cady i will outfight you i will outthink you i will outlast you i will you no know? i mean this is yeah, this is the art of the aggrieved man so i i think that i didn't want to do a memoir because what's the line from that song don't quote me boy because i ain't said shit because i i i thought you should be truthful if you tell it and and my life has been absolutely positively crazy like beyond the pale of crazy and i you know i've got kids and i don't want to be truthful about it so Adam Parfrey was insistent, and every asked me to write something, writes, and I, and then he died. And I said, Okay, well, I'm off the hook now. And then Christina picked it up and was like, You got it. And I was like, Yeah. And then she goes, Why are you resisting? And I said, yeah, I, I love, I, she goes, Look, I'm coming out to San Francisco. And so she came out to San Francisco and she said, Why are you resisting this? And I said, I don't want to write about my sex life. You know, it's, I'm just going to hurt a bunch of people's feelings. And I don't, and she's like, nobody's interested in your sex life. I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. She goes, there are lots of st- things that you did that you could talk about that I think would be completely compelling. And then she started naming off stuff that, I mean, clearly she and Adam had talked about it, you know, from my time with Bill Clinton to, you know, hanging out with Alexis Herman, the, the secretary of, you know, the she was a trade secretary, Ron Brown. I mean, I, I, <laughs> You know, weird, weird, strange things have happened to me, you know, hanging out with Holly Berry. I mean, there's just been, it's been, it's been even before the age of 27. So the book kind of goes birth to 27. There's just been story after story. And even the version that was printed, when I, when I, rem- I forget what I've written it and I said, I wonder did I put that story in there about Frenchie being high on angel dust with a fucking chainsaw and having to wrestle a chainsaw away from him. And of course I, I didn't put it in there, right? <laughs> but but they just like endless, you know, when I got almost stabbed by those eight Puerto Ricans, do you remember I, that didn't go in, Or maybe I put it in and maybe she, in the name of streamline it, pulled it out. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of, wild stuff happened even even in advance of all of the outre sex stuff (laughs) which i'll probably cover it in a a novel how about that we'll put it in a novel
3: i mean you you write very frankly about your experiences including you know witnessing uh sexual assault or sexual assault that Mm -hmm. that happened to people around you Mm -hmm. were you worried about what the, the blowback would be if, if this information got out?
1: No. In fact, the guy the guy who the that first rape that I saw, I found the guy on Facebook and I sent him a friend request. And I fully intended to send the chapter to him. You know, like what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do to me? What are you gonna do? You you know, you know and I know that there's not a fucking lie. And if that person you did that to is still alive, he knows it too. So uh but the guy to maybe smarter than the average bear declined my my friend request so but you know i mean you know the truth is a great defense so i, I tend to and i've lived my whole life as a, a kind of a consistent kind of testament against that kind of fear i never liked the way it felt inside me and i never liked the way it felt when it became a collective experience like i remember being nine eight nine years old and the whole is gaggle of kids i used to hang out with in queens when i'd go over to visit my aunt were like terrified i go what's wrong and this older kid so i was like eight or nine this older kid was about 13 was terrorizing these little kids and he was like you know i'll I'll smash you i'll do this i'll do that to you none of you are gonna fight me and i go i'll fight you (laughs) And he goes, you're going to fight. I'll fuck you up. I was like, no, nah, let's go. And I ended up wrestling him to the ground. And of course, you know, these guys are cowards. Fundamentally, I wrestled them to the ground and I kind of sat on his chest and, you know, hit him a couple of times. He goes, OK, OK, OK. And so I let him go. And on my way back to, you know, all the little kids were no longer afraid. They were like, all right. They were rejoicing this girl who I really liked. At the time, she was like, I heard you beat up Keena," you know, and I was like, Well, you know, we were just messing around. And I was like, Man, this is, this is, it's all right. It's all right to be the hero for an hour. Of course, you know, that didn't really last long. And <laughs> you no, know? I mean, that's the thing. Somebody after Danzig got knocked out somebody from my record label called me and they said, hey, would that really fuck up your brand if you were to get knocked out like dancing did? And I go, no, because I'm not really selling myself as the ultimate badass. I mean, indeed, I did a whole series for Grappling Magazine, which I sort of folded into the fight book that HarperCollins put out. And it was like, you know, where I used to fight professionals and then write about it. And indeed, before I started training really seriously, I spent a lot of time getting my ass kicked, a lot, like a lot. I talk about some of that in the memoir. And this has taught me a great many things about life. <laughs> you know, mostly that I don't like getting my ass kicked. <laughs> you know.
3: Just the the era that you that you write about is, you know, was so rich in terms of how the music scene developed. You you were in New York as, you know, the remotes and the Talking Heads became more popular. Uh, you mm-hmm. moved to California just as you know, mm-hmm. the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag are breaking out. Uh you return to New York and, you know, Harley Flanagan and cro and Agnostic Front and all the uh uh the New York hardcore bands start coalescing. But even before you become involved with the punk scene, like
1: I was I was actually there I was I was there at Agnostic Front's first practice when John Watson was the singer. I was passed out in the room because I hadn't eaten for like two days. And this woman, this Hari Krishna woman, had stolen stolen some milk for me, <laughs> like a little those little pint containers of milk. And so I was like sleeping in the back of the room as they were playing. It was a, a very a very pleasant memory. When I see them playing like stadiums now, it makes me really happy. So,
3: <laughs> but even even before all that happens, I mean, there, there's like this this Forrest Gump quality to the book where you know you're in grade school with one of the members of Typo Negative. Yeah. And at Stanford, you're in a drama club with an actor who people will know as Andre Brower, who's gone on to do like Homicide and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and and be in all these, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, these these very notable roles.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we were in in plays together. We did two plays together. And that's where our paths diverged. It was Emperor Jones ruined me for acting, but it made him, it convinced him at that point he had showed up to be a chemical engineer or a chemist. And I think after he'd done uh, Emperor Jones, he was like, "Fuck that! I'm not doing that." <laughs> and he was on a scholarship. Well, I think Kerma Ghee, maybe the company that almost killed Karen Silkwood, was paying for him to go. And he's like, "No, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be an actor." And I remember his parents being slightly upset about that, but it was clear that he was he was great back then. But I, you know, we we had we had roles of equal weight in the first play we did, which is the basic training of Pablo Hummel. With uh, David Rabe and then the second Emperor Jones. Of course, he was Emperor Jones, which I didn't mind, but I said, okay, what is my character? He's a Len. You're going to be this character, Len. Now you get killed in a crabs game. The first person that he kills, I was like, perfect. I got a death scene. And the director was like, no, but we're going to do it a little differently. You're going to play Lim as a bush. I go, bush. <laughs> what about my lines? He goes, no, no, we're, we're, we're going to get rid of the, the lines. You're just going to act like a bush. <laughs> I was like, man, this sucks, bro. <laughs> I was like, that was it. I was out. I was out. I, I never acted on the stage again. So,
3: depending on how well you knew Adam from Farrell House and Christina, they must have known that your your life touched on all these these different periods, all these different not to be dramatic, but all these like historical events that people were interested in. Was there a sense that that they expected you to write about? or to focus on the music, or was it really just your experience, just your life that they wanted to hear about?
1: No, I mean, I'd read Harley's book, and and I think they wanted the life story because there were constantly these intimations that there was a lot more going on with me than the music, right? Like, you know, when I was in L.A., when Adam was still in L.A., I'd be trying to meet him or we'd be, we, uh, we never actually met in person or just talked on the phone and and email. So we never actually managed to, the guy that he started with, Stuart Sweezy, we'd met from a a muck books. But the first thing that they did, that I did, that they noted was the Birth of Tragedy with Anton LaVey in it. And actually LaVey had, was making a deal with me to publish, to reissue the Satanic Bible and to publish some of his later work. And they came in and swooped and took it, you know, which is the right thing to do. They were much more organized about it than I was, but they always seemed to feel some sort of debt which they paid amply, you know, they... Thanked me at Apocalypse Culture, you know, both versions. And then, they, they, you know, he's been at me to write chapters here and there, I think, which I've done, or or forwards, like even most recently for the Screaming Jay Hawkins, you know, biography, I wrote the forward for it. So, and then I've returned the favor by, you know, Francois Hardy's bio. I, 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 you know, did a big piece on it when I was at Ozzy, this digital magazine. So I think that they wanted, You know they had heard about the stuff i was doing in la with the celebrities and with the you know political figures and i thought they just thought this cat is out of his mind i've been very frank about all the other stuff too the dark stuff i mean all you know at one point the new york times called me and they said hey listen we were fact checking one of your pieces and the guy that we're fact checking says that you are a a drug addicted ex-con is that is there any truth to that and i said well i've been arrested And they said, what would you arrested for? I go, false information to a police officer when I was 18. They said, what happened? I said, I I told him my name was Abraham Lincoln (laughs) and they arrested me. (laughs) And and then they go, okay, well, what about the drug addiction part? I go, well, I, I did an article about, you know, using steroids. I don't even say abusing. I just say using steroids. And I wrote that article for him so he can go fuck himself. And they were like, oh, we're fine then. And they went ahead and published the piece. Anyway... So, you know, I I think Adam had, because he was reading my stuff in Hustler. So that's what it was. I had the tough guy beat in Hustler. So I wrote about collections thugs. I wrote about Southeast Asian knife fighters. I wrote about, you know, steroid abusers. And I think Adam was tuned into that. So he knew outside of the whole straight world, bona fides, that I had had this whole pursuit of the dark. And I think he was very interested in that. So... I wasn't just a music guy, and I—I I, I don't think he was very interested in music ever. And all these cats who like who were generally, you know, not held in great regard, like Boyd Rice, uh, you know, Jim goad you know, strangely enough, all really liked me, <laughs> despite all the kind of you know accusations of white supremacy and so on. They just seemed to like we, you know, I still I consider Jim goad a friend, you know, we and he sends me funny videos every now and then every now and then we talk so Uh, Boyd I've I've lost touch with but I still intend to interview him on camera at some point I think it'd be a great interview and I understand their, their problems with their public image and whatever but that's got nothing to do with me necessarily you know like I've said about Manson and other serial killers you know, uh, they're always nice to me. And in fact, Under Secretary of Defense under George uh, W. Bush was a friend of mine. <laughs> and he said, I mean, how, how do you end up having friends like this? I don't know. He ended up saying, Eugene, you're like a dog. And he, I don't think he meant it as a compliment, but he said, You know, somebody's nice to you. You're loyal forever, and I go. Ah, that sounds good to me. I know you don't mean it as a compliment, but you, 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 know, you will find in life there are few people like me. So I think that comes that's when it comes down. Even Gavin McInnes, right? He was the one who got me in the vice back in the old days. He, you know, how does it happen that I have I've got? These are these are my known associates. It's a strange time.
3: When it came time to write the book, what was your approach? Did you sit down and try to remember everything that happened chronologically? Did you work in sections and then try to fill in fill it in afterwards?
1: No, no, no that's 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 a road to death. If you do it like a term paper where you go okay, I'm gonna write about this neighborhood and this street it, it, it just ends up feeling really canned and and not like a story at all and and the the analog that I use for it, I'm, I'm always imagining somebody pulling up a bar stool next to me and saying, so what's your deal? You know, and this has actually happened to me in real life. I was just telling some guys this morning about I'm on book tour. So I'm by myself driving across America with fight books in the car. And I mm-hmm. stop at this truck stop in Youngston, Ohio. And this guy is staring at me as I'm eating, right? I'm eating breakfast for dinner. Guy's staring at me. And, you know, I'll, I'll take all challenges. I'm eating and looking him right in the eye. Like, we can take this wherever you want to go. And the guy at one point says, hey. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, you want some company? And I was like, what kind of company are you talking about? He goes, you're eating alone, I'm eating alone. How about I bring my plate over there and we sit together? I was like, I mean, he looked like a trucker, right? I was like, fuck it, man. I'm uh, Sure, come on over, bring your plate. So the guy brings his plate over and he starts telling me stories that are just incredible. Right like yeah, I got a son, you know, he's getting divorced now. So I'm I'm heading down to Texas to help him out. I go, "He's getting divorced. What happened? Did she dump him or did he dump her?" He says, "Well, you're not going to believe this, but he caught her having sex with the family dog." It's like, "Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ." Okay. You know what? When people get divorced, they say all they say they say all kinds of things and you're not going to be surprised to know. That this is the second time I've heard this story. And he was like, "Oh yeah," I got photos. I was like, okay, 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 <laughs> okay. I'm gonna tap out right now. Photos of your daughter-in-law having sex with a dog are not what I want to eat with my pancakes. Okay, so, so, so I, I write, I write from the point of view of like I'm pulling up the bar stool. What do you want to know? You know, and that's how I. It was, it was, it was an effortless, effortless write for me. I'm never. You know every time they show writers in movies it just cracks me up you know they're balling up paper and they're throwing the paper on the floor and they're pacing with the pencil in their mouth and they're taking eyes fuck that man i don't do that i just you know i gotta get the work done i gotta finish it that's what my goal is so i wanted to settle some scores (laughs) because i'm that kind of person specifically the thing with my father wanted to, before he died, wanted to get it out there. And outside of that, it was a pretty fun write, you know? I mean, I found myself laughing all the way through it. It amused me to write, so. I was concerned. A lot of times I came to, like, kind of forks in the road where I go, should I be truthful and risk hurting people, or should I give them more political? And you'll be happy to know in each and every case, I decide to go for the truthful, regardless of whether it hurts somebody or not. I mean, I was like, what are you going to do?
3: I I spoke to someone else who wrote very frankly about their their experiences and and put it all in the book, you know, things that they had done and things that had been done to them. And I asked a similar question, like, you know, were you worried about this stuff getting out and getting back to the people? And his response was, well, they're not going to say anything because I know so much more than I actually wrote. And so they would be worried.
1: Yeah, there, there there, there is... Yeah, there is that too. That what, what do we call that? Having the receipts. right? Okay. You know? So you'd be lucky I told it the way I told it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep.
3: But you mentioned being fact-checked by the New York Times. Yeah. Was there a similar process where your stories had to be vetted?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the person I wrote about is looking at 37 years in prison and his trial starts in 2024. So yeah, they wanted to get the facts right and he had some money and maybe deep pockets and there was a perception that he was going to, you know, that he was going to, if things didn't work right, that he'd be suing. But, you know, I, was, I mean, he was just trying to slow the process down in a really weird way. Like he was saying, "I ne- when I was at Goldman Sachs, I never wrote him. He's crazy. So they said, can you prove it? I go, fortunately, I have emails from back then from him at Goldman Sachs. So, you know, I mean, what is it to live outside mm-hmm. the law? You must be honest, says Bob Dylan. And I think largely... You know, and one of the things that he had called me always consistently because he had figured out that it bugged me, he would call me a liar and a bullshitter. And it bugged me because, you know, there are lots of reasons people lie to make themselves look better, which I don't feel a special need to. I'm, I'm pretty happy with how I, you know, yeah. uh, I'm pretty happy with me. And so I don't need to make myself to avoid punishment. I'm not big on avoiding punishment. You the, you got it. You can bring it, bring it, you know, to make yourself better. I mean, to avoid, but I mean. They're all fear based. And so I've lived my life to kind of get beyond the fears. I was like, well, you think I would lie to you? Like, I have to lie to you? You know, so it always ir- ir- irked me. So it was very amusing to have it turned around where he's like, he's lying. And I could prove that I've never lied to you. I'm not going to start. I don't need to. So it was really satisfying. And it was nice getting into the New York Times as well. They paid me on time and paid me way more than I expected.
3: down to write are you very focused do you do you carve out a block of time and just write or
1: no man no listen there's was, was something that stuck that was spoken and that stuck with me forever and ever and ever and it was bukowski again and i know plenty of people who hate him like nick cave hates him for whatever reason i mean nick cave is a is a Berryman guy, not a Bukowski guy. And there's the cult around Bukowski. Those people tend to be kind of nauseating, I know. But he did say, nobody who is worth a damn ever wrote in peace. So, and that's been largely my experience. I mean, I wrote a long, slow screw when I was working at Nikon, (laughs) you know. And I had a fucking cubicle. And I'd specifically chosen this cubicle because... It gave me some sort of privacy. There was a big, I, like a column, you know, a, a, a building support column in, in my office so that people couldn't really get into the office and see what I was working on. So, you know, my back was to the door. I could hear them. And when I turned, I was still covering the screen. So I wrote all the lyrics to Oxbow, Serenade in Red there. I wrote a long, slow screw. No, I mean, you know, i got to be encouraged to stop. If I, if I have a minute... Where you know I got four kids as well, so it's like, and I grew up with, you know, my stepfather was. I'm going to go right now. He had rented a room upstairs, and you know, his his output was very scant, you know, and I I, I, and also uh, my, my father was getting his PhD. And during the same period I'd go down and he would be sitting out in a public place writing on his PhD, but he was never, he, you know, he was not there there. And I find this a lot with kids of ac- academics that their parents are preoccupied. And I didn't like that feeling. I said, oh, I always want to be there for my kids no matter what. So that means interruptions, all that stuff, It just, it's part of the process, right? I mean, nobody who's worth a damn ever wrote in peace. My kid wants to talk to me, I stop and I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to look them in the eye and I'm going to think about what they're saying. And then if what I'm about to write that they've interrupted, if it's good enough, it'll stay. And if it's not, I'll come with something else, you know? And, and, you know, and that's largely the attitude you have to have since I started. I mean, I've written pages and then had the computer crash and they're gone. Like they're gone, Right and what are you going to do at that point you're going to like not run or just suck it up and get back to writing so there's a lot of that with me just just getting the job done i'm not precious about it all i got to got to get the words on the page you got to don't be one of those guys who's like ah well if i did you know i know you know how many people i know if i only had that if I if I only had that thing, then I could do that other thing. Now, Fuck that, man! As long as I have a pencil and something to scratch on, I can get this stuff done.
3: The book starts with family history before you're born, and it ends with you working on the first Oxbow album, Fuckfest. Why, why was that the ending point?
1: Because because you couldn't you couldn't get too far. I, I talk about that period as a period when I lost my mind. And I really, I had a real major road to Damascus moment at the point where I decided to not kill myself, right? So Fuckfest was a record that was supposed to be a suicide note. And then I went to London and I came back and we did King of the King of the Jews. And then I had almost, you know, a complete, uh, I just, a uh, total about face. And I had what I call, you know, like the road to Damascus moment where i i decided that i was done with becoming and that i needed to really get about the business of being and that the phrase that kept coming back to me was quiet embrace of self and i said in other cases that i've noted with historical figures who this is this happened to whether it's you know paul and saul or saul becoming paul or you know uh, Stalin had a moment. Mao had a moment. These were all really bad guys, <laughs> you know. Hitler had a moment, but they've talked very publicly about these moments of transformation. Ooh, Hitler's case, he was struck blind. He it was hysterical blindness, is what the doctors call it. But they, they, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, they all came out of this with. And whether this is part of the origin myth or the hero's journey, as they've prefigured it, I don't know. But they had this moment and and I was having that moment as well, leaving behind, becoming, trying and just getting to being and quiet, quietly embracing who exactly it is that I am. And I said, I made a promise to myself, I go, I'm going to do this. And if if it ends up being bad for the people around me, I will stop doing it. You know, I don't. I don't need forty million dead to convince me that maybe I should have stopped forty million people ago. If I become a complete sociopath, I, I, you know, I gotta stop. I can't. I can't do that. So, once having made that promise to myself, I then proceeded to quietly embrace who it is that I really was, beyond judgment and beyond apology. And that had me doing a lot of stuff that 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 is just it's you know head exploding time to even begin writing about you know as well as statue of limitations issues (laughs) so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to guess at what i'm talking about (laughs) i mean i was a bad guy you know but i was I was good in my badness. I was an honest bad guy. You know, like Tony Montana said, I was. even when I lie, I tell the truth. There was nothing dishonest about my th- my quiet embrace of self. But yeah, at, at a certain point, you know, at a certain point, I couldn't start talking about that without finish talking about that. And that's a whole nother book and they weren't going to give me another hundred pages.
3: Do you have a second book in you? Do you want, I mean, not a second book, but do you have a sequel to it? It
1: depends on how well this one does. But... I I I I still need to I I would need to you know what I would need to do I would need to sit in consultation with a lawyer <laughs> and, and just go point by point like this is what I want to write about can I write about this you know uh, without facing serious legal consequence and that's even outside of people's hurt feeling like you know you know guys reading like oh. Oh, that time that Eugene dropped my wife off, he actually fucked my wife. Are you kidding me? I was like, ah, oh, man. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah, man, that's that's what I did. I, you know, in most of those cases, you know, I've I've cleared, I've actually told people, I said, it's better you hear it from me, right? So you hear it. So I, I feel fairly my soul feels feels fairly clean in that regard. But you know, like I said, it, it should probably be something that I sit down with with a lawyer and talk about. But I have a version. If I actually, you know, they come up with a real offer, <laughs> you know, some serious money. So let's see. If people want us to be the second one, they'll buy a lot of this book, and then we'll do the second one. So I mean, it's also rollicking. I didn't, you know, I did it. If I'm holding you by your ankles outside of a four-story window, you have to know to a certain degree that I'm pretty amused at what I was doing. <laughs> so- Oh, you oh, know, I mean, it doesn't seem that way to the rest of the world, but, you know, I had no intention of really dropping the guy. I just needed to make a point. <laughs> you know? So that's the kind of stuff that and I mean, this is, you know, I mean, this is where this is my in pursuit of authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an artist and all, but I'm also a nut. Right. <laughs> yeah, so... uh
3: a Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight into murderers Row is out now through Feral House. Eugene, what's the best way to get the book? How can people order it?
1: Well, you can go, you can order it straight from, well, of course, Amazon or goodbookshop.org, I think. If you if you hate Amazon, these are the best places to get it the fastest. But I always recommend people go straight to uh, Feral House. Which is feralhouse.com. It's pretty simple, you know. They're glad to fill the orders, and they also have for the first hundred, they have special, special sexy treats. They're going to send back to you, <laughs> which, 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 uh, which greatly amused me to have done. So that's how they should get a hold of uh, uh, of the memoir.
3: And in addition to the book, Oxbow released a new album some months back called. Love's Holiday through Ipecac Records. Do you want to say anything about the new Oxwell album?
1: Yes. Yes. It's great. And uh, apparently uh, it seems like it's uh, Lovely Merc. The song off of it with Lingua Ignota, Kristen Hader, is possibly being considered for a Grammy for Best New Rock Performance, which is kind of wild, especially given that it's our second time at the at the Grammy thing. Not something you'd expect from us unwashed maniacs. So that's kind of cool and we have a big debut uh, of the we're doing a video for every single song. So I think song number 7 the video debuts tomorrow which won't mean anything cuz the show will already be out by then but it's called Gunnel which most people mispronounce as gun whale which cracks me up. Obviously not the not not the not nautical people, you know. So that's uh that's pretty cool. Epicac has been great and we're playing shows around the country which will also be followed by book book tours. And I don't I don't read from the books. I just talk. So I figure you can read, and that's what the book is for. But uh, uh, again, the bar stool methodology. You pull up a stool next to me. What are you going to get? Well, let's talk, and that's usually what I'm doing.
3: And as you mentioned, Bunwell has a a double album coming out in 2024. Uh, what can you tell me about that?
1: Manstitude. It's it's great. We're going to do try to do a video on every song, in that too, which is tough because it's a double album and it's a fourth. The last one was Killers Like Us. Uh, it was number three, which was ending a trilogy that started with A Resting Place for Strangers, followed by The Easy Way Out, Killers Like Us. And this is the fourth one. So it begins a new cycle. And these guys who play in it are pretty phenomenal Italian musicians as well. And we'll also tour on that next year as well. So it'll be a lot of Oxbow touring, Boonwell touring and book touring. So no more excuses like ah, next time. Nah, you got plenty of times now. Yeah, you got no excuses.
3: And if people want to follow you online, find out about your book tour and read more of your writing, what's the best way to do that?
1: The Substack, stack. If uh, Look What You Made Me Do, a title I picked well before the Taylor Swift song. So you can find me on the Substack or Mr. Sleep and the number three on Instagram. Or uh, I think I'm all topped up with on Facebook, but these are ways to at Eugene S. Robinson for... I'm just keep calling it Twitter because you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to bow to his whims and call it X. You know what I mean, on the on the Twitter machine.
3: By the time this episode comes out, it it could be called something something completely different, right?
1: You know, our our base player worked for him for a long time. He was like the number six guy at Tesla, and he doesn't think he's a total asshole. But I I just I. I I'm having a hard time getting around to seeing him in, in the way my friend is, our bass player is so yeesh.
3: <laughs> so Substack, Twitter or X or whatever it's called, Instagram
1: Instagram Mr. Sleep3 So that's the one I'm most active in. I think there's Eugene S. Robinson there, but I'm less active there. Mr. Sleep 3. Mr. Sleep was one of the names I I used to use when I was a dominatrix. Or actually, a a dom is what a man is. (laughs) And that's the stuff I didn't want to write about. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that's just a a tip of a much more, much stranger iceberg. That's the stuff that everybody really wants to read. But, you know, I don't know if my kids want to read it,
3: right? Eugene, you've been very generous with your time, but is there anything else you want to say?
1: Uh, no, I think I think that's, I, I keep waiting for you to invite me to to stop by if I happen to be in Malaysia, <laughs> but uh, you, you haven't done that yet, so I assume you do not want to see me in Malaysia. But were I to ever be in Malaysia, I will stop by to see you. <laughs> you, can, you can stop
3: by to see me. You can also stop by uh, Hikari MMA and, and train with us. Uh, that's where I do jiu-jitsu.
1: Oh, how did you wait this long <laughs> to tell me that? We got a minute left. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? Why did you tell me? We would have been spent the whole show geeking out on, on fight stuff. Jesus Christ. Well, are you doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Gi or no Gi?
3: Both. I haven't done no Gi in a little bit, but I'm mostly focused on the Gi right now.
1: Uh, okay, what belt are you?
3: I'm a purple belt under uh, Professor Bruninho Barbosa.
1: Oh, fuck fuck yeah for sure for sure we gotta we gotta train i'm a black belt but we gotta train though that now i have a reason to get there that's cool
3: (laughs) well definitely i look forward to seeing you thank you so much eugene
1: all right adrian later Yeah.